Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer. And she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way. Patients and survivors, caregivers and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire, and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 173 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Colon Cancer Awareness Month continues, and I could not think of a better guest to bring on the show for the final episode of March than Allison Rosen. If you are in the least bit involved in the colon cancer community, especially via social media, then you know Allison is a force. Her videos on TikTok, Instagram, and all of the amazing work that she does, both on her own time as well as part of her paid profession, is all around helping all of us in the colon cancer community. So Allison is back for her second appearance. Uh, she was had a brief appearance on the podcast a few years back, and I'm so glad that we were able to get Allison back on the show to talk about colon cancer, her story, the work that she's doing. I know you're going to enjoy this one. So join me now for my conversation with Allison Rosen. Allison, it's not often that I get to tell somebody welcome back to the podcast, but I get to do that with you, which is great. But goodness, we, we still haven't figured out it's been three years, four years, whatever it's been. So it doesn't matter. I'm glad to see you and glad to have you back on the show. And before I hit record, you said something and I said, oh, that's going to be my opening question. And you said so much has changed since we last spoke. Floor's yours. <laughs> What's changed? I mean, I I think the last time we talked, I was sort of entering my career path and sort of public health, working in colorectal cancer outreach, education, prevention, and and since then, it's, it's been at least three or four years. The the wealth of knowledge that I've learned from not only being a colorectal cancer survivor but being in the public health space has changed drastically. I think that luckily, you know, I've, I've gained the respect of people within the community to be able to do my work, but also help represent that patient voice. And I'm beyond lucky that, that I get to do this work every day. And I was just telling someone earlier, the bottom line is I get to work to help save lives. And these are my friends' lives that I want to help save. And, and the future you know, sons and daughters and aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers of my friends as well, because 
you know, I know you know, and I know everyone listening here knows that one in 24 are diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And so I think I've learned a lot and I've, I've gotten a lot from the community. So that's a very short version of a lot has changed in my life and in, in the space that, that we're involved in. One of the things that has changed noticeably over the year since we spoke is the focus on young onset colorectal cancer. Talk about all that you have seen that has changed in that space uh, since we last spoke. Wow. I mean, so much has changed. I think now people are listening. You know, I think people younger were getting diagnosed and, and passing away at an alarming rate. There weren't a lot of treatment options. There wasn't a lot of talk about ever lowering their screening age. And now I think the younger, the early onset population and patients, advocates, you know, physicians at CS, we all have a voice. We all have a power that, that now the U.S. Preventive Service, Services Task Force has listened to us. And the research is done that's shown that that screening rate should be lowered to 45. I know, I know that um, myself and many others would love it to be lowered even lower. And I think more research is being done now so that maybe, you know, one day that will happen as well. But it's small steps. And, and those, <clears throat> those small steps are huge because, you know, I had no idea younger people could get colorectal cancer until I got it. And I had no idea there were so many others like me within the community. So I think our voice is, is very pronounced. And I just attended GI ASCO virtually last weekend. And there was a whole section tailored around early age onset. Um, research that had to do with possibly the, the, the microbiome. Research that had to do with possibly the different type of treatment options. You know, the survival, there's a lot of talking about psychosocial and long-term survivorship issues. And this was just early age onset. And four, you know, three, four years ago, the, that conversation was maybe sort of just starting to happen and, and not as national as a meeting like GIA ASCO. So um, I was pleasantly surprised and very, very um, happy to see them talking about a lot of these issues that a lot of us have talked about and, and been pushing for a long period of time. But now I think the attention and the spotlight is finally um, focused on that. So that means more research and more answers for the young onset community. For those who don't know, tell us who, what GI ASCO is. Gastrointestinal American Society of Clinical Oncology. So it's like a huge, there's a huge American Society of Clinical Oncology. And then they have sort of sub sub meetings, and this one was just focused on gastrointestinal cancers. So, what are some of the unique challenges that young people face in the psychosocial space as it relates to colorectal cancer? I know you can certainly speak from experience. Yeah, I mean, the psychosocial aspect has to do with so much, but I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the first thing I did when I was diagnosed was ask for a psychologist. Or and ask for someone to talk to my age, because I knew I had challenges to face ahead, and I had no idea what they were. But the challenges, you know, include many things. But you know, for me, it's you know, body image. You have lots of changes that happen to your body, especially if you have an ostomy, or even if you have any sort of surgery, which involve that's almost every single stage of, of colorectal cancer. You have the financial toxicity aspect of it. How you know, depending on what age you are. 
if you're starting if you're starting a new job or you're in a job that won't let you take a lot of time off, you might lose your job. Or if you have a family, you know, do you choose between putting food on the table for that family versus getting your treatment? You know, I have a job. I love my job, obviously. But when I first was diagnosed, I was like, I can't lose my job. I have to have a job so I can have insurance. Otherwise, I will not be able to afford this treatment that I'm having. Like, it just it's just crazy. So, you know, you have the body image, the financial toxicity. Young onset has to do with sexual dysfunction and and fertility. You know, there's not there wasn't when I was first diagnosed, there wasn't someone that dealt with fertility at MD Anderson. Now there is. And she is amazing. And again, she talked at Gia Asco about what can be done to preserve fertility. And what was done back then in, in 2012 is basically, you know, freezing eggs. Now there are so many different options that you can do. So if you don't have a fertility specialist at your cancer center or at your clinic or wherever you're being treated, there is somebody out there that can help you somewhere. There's nonprofits, there's groups that, that help with fertility preservation and, and whatnot that, that didn't exist, you know, five years ago, four years ago. So, I mean, it, it's anything from, from day-to-day tasks with your life and, and then things that can affect you long-term. I mean, the long-term effects of, of, of radiation or, or chemotherapy, I have osteoporosis, uh, which is crazy. My body is essentially the body of someone much, much older than me due to the treatment that I've been on. Young, young onset patients are living longer. And, and so they haven't really previously taken into account all the things that will happen to us, you know, in five, 10, 20 years after we've been diagnosed. So as the, the treatment options, you know, progress and get better, those long-term side effects that they haven't necessarily studied are now, you know, coming to light and, and being talked about much more openly, which is much appreciated by myself and I think all of the colorectal cancer community. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the We Have Cancer Show. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Brody Nicholas and I have the honor of leading Campaign One at a Time. This month, we are sponsoring a five-year-old little girl named Caroline. Caroline is from Clovis, California and is currently battling osteosarcoma. Despite everything she's going through, Caroline always has a smile on her face and she never fails to bring joy to others. She loves dancing and even dances through her chemo treatments. Caroline recently had a major surgery to remove her right humerus and tumor, which is now replaced with a prosthetic bone. Although Caroline has missed out on a lot due to her treatment and now her inability to move her right arm, her and her family like to focus on the things she can do and not what she can't. This month, we are on a mission to raise $10,000 to send Caroline and her family on a trip of a lifetime to the Alani Disney Resort in Hawaii. Caroline has really wanted to go to Hawaii after she's done with treatment, as well as Disneyland, so we thought this would be the best of both worlds. You could learn more about Caroline's campaign and how you can help by visiting wehavecantorshow.com forward slash Caroline. Thank you so much for listening, and let's keep spreading good together so we can make more amazing memories possible for another brave warrior. You know, because of the work that you do, you have access to things like GI ASCO. Where does the rest of the population go to get this kind of information? Well, so GI ASCO was actually open to any patient advocate that wanted to attend. So the good thing, I say the good thing about COVID, and I'm sure we might talk about COVID-19 in a bit, but most everybody that is a patient 
or is a caregiver or wants to get more involved in the community can can reach out to them and ask if they can attend these meetings for free because they're virtual the cost of putting them on has gone down and i think because they value the patient voice so much more that they're letting patient advocates attend these meetings for free and then after these meetings if you don't have access or can't do that because you're working or whatnot, there's webinars that a lot of nonprofits put on. So today I attended during lunchtime while I was eating my lunch, Fight CRC um, had a webinar highlighting the different talks that Gia Asco put on. So I think the power of social media is huge because if you don't have access to these, you know, these meetings and, and some of them are, are over my head. So they'd be over anybody else's head that has no scientific background. But then you get to some of these experts on, you know, on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram that will do sort of live webinars where they sort of talk and break down what's come out as far as hot topics as research, what has been presented. And, and that's great because that's reaching the broader audience that might not have access to any of this stuff that, that I, I might have or other patient advocates. Yeah, I guess what you're saying about some of it being over your head, I, I spent a little time working on the CRU, the UK project that Dr. Laura Porter's involved in. And I'd be on these webinars and I was spend the other half of my screen was Googling the words that I was hearing uh, because it was a little over my head. That being said, you know, can you for the uninformed, talk about why there's such a focus now on young onset colorectal cancer. What has changed in terms of rate of diagnosis that people might not be aware of? I mean, like I said earlier, the rate rate of diagnosis, the morbidity, mortality, the rate that people are being diagnosed and the rate that unfortunately they're passing away has become huge. It's mainly in rectal cancer. It's, it's in both colon and, and rectal cancer, but the younger population are getting rectal cancer at a higher rate. So that's, that sort of spurred on the research. The research has shown this, and that means that they need more treatment options, more, more awareness, more prevention programs. And, and, you know, I think the sheer number of, of what's going on and, and the, the people willing to speak up and talk about it because there was a stigma, and um, I know everyone listening probably, um, there's always been a stigma about talking about, you know, your butt and going to the bathroom and stool. Well, slowly but surely, I think we're we're breaking we're breaking away from that stigma, and people are, are willing, more willing to talk about it. And when people are more willing to talk about it, then it brings to light that it is happening more. The research can show it, but I think a lot of patient advocacy organizations, as well as patients and survivors and caregivers and whatnot are pushing the needle in and in, in making, not making, but asking people to figure out why, to study why. And, and it's not an easy answer at all, um, but they've made strides in, in, and that shows with, like I said, the Pre- U.S. Preventive Services Task Force being willing to lower that age to 45 because, you know, they weren't, wouldn't have considered that even five years ago. So the fact that the research is showing that it's happening at an alarming rate and you have teenagers that are talking about it and, and no one that's in their teens that should be living, you know, this ran this life that they're going skateboarding or they're going swimming or they're in band. None of them should have to be dealing with colorectal cancer. None. Has there been any 
conversation or inroads, I guess is probably the better word, into the cause of this fairly sudden rise in colorectal cancer? Uh, I know the answer is probably not, but where, you know, uh, where are they snooping around? Where are they looking at perhaps possible causes? You know, I wish I wish I had an answer. And and after attending this conference, I was hoping I get a little bit more as far as an answer. They're still studying the microbiome. That's always sort of been um, on their radar to study to figure out why younger people, the gut, what's going on in the gut, what's in our diet, what we're you know eating or not eating. But something I heard earlier today, as far as early age onset, was that everything we're doing for prevention, we should be doing after for survivorship as well. So someone that might, you know, I, there are plenty of people that have had recurrences of, of their cancer after they've had it. So I think that they're saying that the, the diet, the exercise, the um, not smoking, the not drinking or in moderation, all of that um, is what you need to be doing before, you know, possibly, but then even after, which, I think, I think colorectal, but also just cancer patients in general are relatively healthy after they've gone through what they've gone through because they know that, you know, you could be the healthiest person, but you got to continue that after. But, but really the conversation is, you know, prevention and trying to, to have early detection. I think that they're still trying to study why. And I think they have sort of, moved a little bit further along in, in the gut microbiome and, and, and looking at the science behind it, but there's not enough research to definitively say why younger people are getting it. I mean, that's what I see these graphs of the rectal cancer and the colon cancer going up, but the why is still being studied. It hasn't been presented as much as I'd like it to be. It's, 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 they're, they're talking more so about different treatment options that can be done that can limit those long-term side effects. And, you know, I think we, we all know about like fit tests. We all know about FOBT. We all know about Cologuard. We all know about, you know, the colonoscopy, the gold standard, but there's a lot of people doing research to figure out maybe a blood test or, or other ways to detect colorectal cancer early. And, and when you have something as simple, say as simple, something that that is more like a a blood-based screening method, you're more likely to be able to screen younger people or get your doctor to agree to do a blood test versus, you know, a very expensive colonoscopy procedure. So, I mean, I wish I had an answer. I listen, all these meetings I attend, all these things that I read, I'm constantly, okay, give me something new, give me something new. But there just isn't, not yet. You're currently your your job is is that still related to colorectal cancer or no? Yeah, so I'm I'm a project director at um, University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, and we just got awarded the um, the CDC Center for um, Disease Control Colorectal Cancer Prevention. Um, there's a project that we're we're working on, and it's implementation of evidence based interventions to increase the colorectal cancer screening rate. And so we're focusing on federally qualified health centers, um, really the underprivileged, underserved, you know, minority populations that are at higher risk for colorectal cancer. So 
that's my new job. It's amazing. It's great. So it's a CDC funded project that's been around for a while and Texas has just never gotten it. So finally we got it and I'm happy to, to help lead this project and, and bring that screening rate up hopefully in Texas. It's got to be incredibly rewarding to be a colon cancer survivor, passionate advocate, and then collect a paycheck to do that kind of work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thank my lucky stars every day that I, I got the opportunity to get into this field and that I, I got the opportunity to network and meet other people within the field. And, and that sort of got me to where I am right now. And it, it is it is that passion that I have that after everything I went through that really drove me to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life after I, you know, you know, got through my treatment. I was working in cancer research, but I felt like my abilities, my passion, you know, my experience could help in another realm. And so in public health, it, it really is, it's the field that I was meant to be in, but I had no idea. So I, I know how lucky I am that I get to do this for my job because I know other other survivors would, would give an arm and a leg to, to work in this field and, and any opportunity I get that we can involve patients or survivors or, or the you know patient population, I, I reach out to the people that I know in the community because it's so important for a patient to have a voice. And sometimes I'm in a room with 20, 30 academics and I'm, you know, st I'm in the field, I'm in the same field as them, but I'm also have that perspective as a, you know, a survivor. And so I, I used to be shy. I'm not shy anymore. I, I speak up, you know, talking about, I know, I know this is the science behind it, but you have to take into account the patient. You have to think about their journey, their voice and what they're going to get out of it. Cause we're only as good as what we can do to change and make an implementation, you know, an evidence-based intervention work for that patient. So we might think we know what barriers exist, but until we actually talk to the patients, we don't know. And, and so I can give my feedback, but then I also, like I said, get as much feedback as I can from the other, from the community at large that might have different experiences been treated in a, you know, there might be rural, urban, you know, Every city, state, you know, is it's different. So I really try to represent that collective voice by by asking those questions. And as like I said, I'm pleasantly surprised every time I get the response I do. And, it, and it's it's because everyone wants you know their story and their voice heard, and I want I want that for them. So I try to to do my best to do that when I'm in any meeting that has to do with colorectal cancer. And they talk about what the patient might need. Are there any specific barriers that patients face that you find commonly medical professionals are unaware of? I mean, I think they, they don't think about the home life. They, they Medical professionals, obviously, you know, a patient's coming in. If they've made it to the clinic, they don't really realize sometimes that it took a day off of work that they got docked pay. It took two hours to get from their home to the clinic. It took finding a babysitter for maybe two kids, five kids, whatever. It took a lot to get that patient from 
their home into the clinic. So they need to make the most of that time they have with the patient to make sure they tell them about all the applicable, you know, prevention services that they're, they're, they're able to get, all the, the services that they have you know, access to. So, you know, I think oftentimes the provider is, is very much focused on, you know, cure, treatment, that they don't ask, how are you doing? Like that one question, the empathy and the how are you doing makes that patient feel like they aren't just a number and they care. And then they might find out that that patient took two hours to get to the clinic by bus, changing five times. So I think transportation, family, just just what's going on outside of, of, of their health, um, they're sometimes far removed from that. So those are some barriers that we're, we're working on, you know, educating the providers about, making sure they know about that. It's not just, it's not just the providers, it's the whole staff because, you know, sometimes there are gas cards that can be given, Uber gift, Uber cards, um, ride share, like any sort of bus pass that might help that, um, you know, that patient come in for their appointment might help them not, um, not put off scheduling their colonoscopy. I think that, um, you know, a lot of patients, a lot of, a lot of providers are learning more because like I said earlier, the patients are speaking up, the community is speaking up about what their barriers are. But our goal in this project specifically is to identify a lot of these barriers and help them any way we can solve them. And if it's to take, to help, you know, automate, you know, automate this one thing, you know, basically maybe a patient reminder system, automate that so that those patient navigators can can work on helping the patient deal with transportation or childcare or or get a letter for their job that they missed that they're scared they're going to get fired from for missing that one day to go into the clinic. So you're out working in the garden and when you're done, your hands are covered with dirt and mud or maybe you're working on your car and your hands are covered with grease and oil when you're done. Do you clean up by just wiping them off with a dry paper towel and going on about your day? I don't think so. So why do we do that with our butts? Why do we clean up with a dry piece of paper? If you're being treated for cancer like I am, you know oftentimes chemotherapy increases the trips to the bathroom. And I was at my wit's end trying to find a way to get comfortable and eliminate the itching and pain associated with all those trips to the bathroom. And that's when I came across Lux Bidet. In about 15 minutes, I attached the uh, bidet to my toilet and haven't looked back and it's been uh, some time now. And it just leaves me feeling clean and refreshed. And it's something you really should check out. You can do so by visiting wehavecancershow.com forward slash Lux. That's L-U-X-E. You should know that if you do make a purchase, that We Have Cancer Show does receive a little bit of a commission from that. But that does not in any way increase the price that you pay for the bidet itself. It just helps support the show. You have many options to choose from. I can't live without it. And I know once you get one, you won't be able to either. Again, visit wehavecancershow.com forward slash Lux. That's L-U-X-E. 
Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. Let's shift gears a little bit. We're talking about where do you gain knowledge, and you mentioned social media. <laughs> you knew I was going to go there. <laughs> You've earned, I think that's the right word, the reputation as the colon cancer queen of TikTok. <laughs> And uh, not only do you do it well, it really seems like you've had fun with it, but you've taken the time. I mean, I, I, as proficient as I like to think I am at social media, that's one arena I've not spent time in, but I know that, (laughs) you know, they all take time and you devoted a ton of time, including my own story to, to share the stories of dozens of people touched by colorectal cancer. Why did you do that? And what was the impact? It's crazy because COVID gave me a lot of free time. I'm not really able to, to go out much. I, I work and I work and I work. And and so my, my outlet to connect to others has always been social media. And someone suggested TikTok for the younger population. And I was like, well, this is great. You know, we're, we're talking about early age onset what best, what better platform can I go to but TikTok? And I, I was very much like, oh, hesitant because it's another social media platform I had to learn. But, you know, I got on and just like anyone that looks at TikTok for a while, you're laughing, you're crying, you're like, it, it's just, it's very entertaining. And so I, I realized that there was a whole niche for cancer, the cancer community on TikTok. And I realized that if I can educate one person on there, one person, I can help save that life or, or the life of someone they know, then I'm going to try it. Why not? So I had all this knowledge in my head about, about colorectal cancer, starting doing little dances, little, you know, um, informationals, because they're like 15 to 30 seconds, right? They're very, very short. So about the signs and symptoms, about communication tips. And as I started doing that and gaining followers, I realized that like, I'm just one person telling, you know, my story and giving education out. So I did my first little piece with other survivors. I mean, people just responded in a way that I wasn't expecting to that being like, Oh, I want to share my story. And Oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know that you knew this person. I didn't know that there were so many other people that looked like you that, that had colorectal cancer. I think it started on TikTok. People being like, young people can get it. And and then when I, you know, posted the first video and and people were like, you know, I got a lot of messages being like, I want to do this. And so I, I did a second post and I asked for other people that were interested in, in sharing their story. And it just went, it went crazy. And it was just like, okay, well, I know what I'm doing on TikTok for the next few months. This is so important because I'm one person and that community. And like I said, I posted my TikToks on Facebook and on Instagram as well. But the, the social media community is so powerful that if I could show hundreds of patients that look just like, you know, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your cousin, then people would realize, okay, well, let me think if you're telling me these symptoms and that person looks just like me, I need to go get screened. So I think I wanted to like I always said, I always want to represent the, the patient voice, but I wanted to do what I can to let everybody else feel like their their story, their their experience, what they had to say mattered as well. And I was trying to figure out how to do that on TikTok. And so I think the power of a picture 
and the power of a few words was huge. And the impact was just, was insane. I think I had <clears throat> a few, a few thousand followers and now I'm, I'm up to almost 10,000 followers. And I think it's, it's mainly because of those, those TikToks, those, those patient stories and, and people seeing the person that looked like their neighbor. And it, it really resonated with them. And I had people on TikTok that I wasn't connected with at first that were like, oh, I'm a survivor, a colorectal cancer survivor. I want you to share my story too. So besides, you know, people I knew, I had people that I didn't know asking if I could share their story, which was great. And I did. And I wasn't going to stop doing these until I, I shared every single person that asked me to share their picture for their story. Did you keep a count? How many did you wind up sharing? I think I was at 188 last time I counted, and I probably have a few more people that have slowly reached out, trickled from that. So I'll probably do more. I, I did a, a collage of all the pictures, and I actually think I want to like frame. I want to get it developed, and I want to frame it. And I want to put it like right by my computer so that I can see it every day because that 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 picture is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I think my story is powerful, but every single picture that that represents you know it might be 188 people but that represents so many hundreds of people that are dealing with the disease right now so as you started to wind down on that project you shifted gears and decided that it was important to shine a light on the ostomic community as well why was that i know that's personal to you but what was specific about the thought process there of wanting to share those stories in particular? I think that it, it sort of started from the initial sharing, just, you know, patient stories. And then sort of my journey with my ostomy was I had no idea what an ostomy was. I was very adamant about not getting an ostomy. I mean, nobody that looked like me that had an ostomy, I didn't even know what it was. And so I did, I had done a TikTok um, of myself in different outfits with um, for ostomy awareness, basically saying they told me I would never exercise. I, I I definitely exercise now. They told me I would, you know, my brain wouldn't be the same. I wouldn't be able to work again. I'm working again, and so I did that one, and that one went viral, and so it, it resonated. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to this community that I have and ask if anyone else wants to share because me sharing that was the first time I'd ever shown my ostomy in public on a social media platform ever. And it was so empowering for me that I wanted to give other ostomates the power to do that themselves. So they'd feel more confident. They'd, you know, you know, be empowered to share their story as well, because it's, it's definitely just like colorectal cancer. It's a taboo topic. People don't necessarily want to talk about it. People are definitely shy about showing their ostomy, but once I show showed mine and told people more about my story, people, other people opened up and, you know, it's, it's that sense of community, that sense of support. So sharing that on TikTok is sort of the same. There's a whole ostomy community, you know, not all colorectal cancer related, some related to other diseases and, and, and whatnot, but it, it's just, it, it's opened my eyes to things I didn't even know about that I learned. And I think, and I hope it's helped those other ostomates that that were willing to share to to feel more confident in in, in their ostomy and their story. So that then hopefully they'll go in return and, and share theirs 
on their social media, with friends, with family, whoever, so that it will not will no longer be a taboo topic. Have you ever stopped to think the impact you've had on so many people's lives? I haven't. You know, and it's funny because people, you know, I'll get messages all the time from people asking a simple question and, and, and I'll take the time obviously to answer it. That's my number one priority is to help, help anybody that reaches out. And if it might not be, might not be that exact day, it might be a few days later just because of what's going on in my life. But, you know, the impact and support I got that I, I really am truly believes helped save my life is what I've dedicated my life to. And so I haven't really thought about the impact. I just know that that whatever I can give, I will continue to do until I, I can't any longer. So I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, for me, it's just about helping others. So I have no idea. I have no idea what, what impact there, there probably is a way to track that and see views and, and likes and shares, but like, let's say one post gets a hundred views and another post gets 5,000, you know, if the two or five people that saw that one post that, you know, maybe didn't get as much, you know, didn't have as much impact because it wasn't shared as much, it helped one person. So, um, you know, like I said, it's, it's for me, it's, it's giving back. I got help and I want to help others for as long as people will let me. I can't think of a better way to, wrap up our conversation than right there. Allison, this has been a pleasure, long overdue. And I've been a fan from afar. You know, we only met that one time at call in Congress, I think it was in 2018. So it's been about three years. But uh, it's such a privilege and an honor to talk to someone who whether they realize it or not want to admit it or not, have impacted thousands of people's lives. And that's pretty special. Well, thank you. That's pretty special. So all the best to you and stay well. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Colon Cancer Coalition has many ways that you can help support this important organization that's doing so much in the world of colorectal cancer. If you visit donate.coloncancercoalition.org, you can find these events that are taking place across the country, and they all have opportunities to participate virtually. We've got Get Your Rear and Gear events where you can run and walk. We've got Tour de Tush bike events. We've got a Caboose Cup golf event. So whatever it is that you enjoy doing, wherever you may live, there is an opportunity for you to support the Colon Cancer Coalition. Once again, to learn more about these events and how you can support the Colon Cancer Coalition, visit donate.coloncancercoalition.org. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to the Colon Cancer Coalition for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Colon Cancer Coalition by visiting their website at coloncancercoalition.org. You can subscribe to the We Have Cancer podcast, stay up to date on our latest blog posts, listen to the latest episodes, and much more by visiting our website at wehavecancershow.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at We Have Cancer Pod. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group by visiting We Have Cancer. Thank you again for listening. Be well, everyone.